Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you from our at-home studio, which is hopefully a little less noisy than the, <laughs> the, planes the, the venue the that the we things that were... spoke to you from last month. Yes, uh, we are at home, and we've been home for a couple of weeks after the big African safari, which uh, lasted about three weeks and was, of course, in Africa. And we took a nice long flight to get home, but we have made it safely. And so we are anticipating another big RV adventure that will start in January. But first, ladies and gentlemen, we start with Africa, the oh, dark continent. I thought you were starting with the snafu. Oh, well, you're going to bring up the snafu, huh? Well, I am so really sorry about last month, but... You have no idea what he went through to get the podcast we, we as good as he got it. We consider top priority, whether we are at home or whether we are on the road, to make sure that you have the podcast on the first of each month. But last month, it was a bit of a challenge, and I was so close to getting it done. We obviously need to plan our travel yes. better so that well, it doesn't take place over the first of the month. <laughs> hmm. Not a bad idea. Actually, we did the podcast a bit early so that we could post it while we were in Nairobi. You'll remember the month before, we were in Dubai, and we uh, flew to Nairobi, which was about five and a half hours. And I said, well, I don't know about Internet connections after we leave Nairobi, the capital of Kenya. And so I said, well, let's make the podcast a bit early. So we sat by the hotel in Nairobi and made the podcast, and I got it all edited and everything. So once it's edited, I just... Uh, Mount it, and that means uploading it to our server here in the United States. And I was so close, but unfortunately, what happened is, is that I was using a new computer to make the XML file, and that's the link between the iTunes and the actual file where the podcast is located because we host that. iTunes checks the file every time to see if it's new. So the XML file had the wrong link to the podcast, which is why you got the 404 error. And the 404 error means that it, the link is wrong. And so even after all of that, I could not get it up on time. But after three days, and I thank you all for sending me emails, and sorry if I didn't answer all of your emails, but uh, I just didn't have internet. <laughs> but the fix was very easy um, once I found what the problem was, so and I didn't have to. Re I didn't. Yes, well, I didn't have to re-upload and spend all that time to upload the file. All I had to do was fix a very small, like like an email file, so that I was able to down, uh, upload from a distant location in the middle of a safari. But I couldn't have uploaded the actual podcast itself. So. Last month was a small disaster, but I hope all of our friends are – oh, yes, and I also forgot about the webpage. I couldn't do the webpage because I just didn't have the, the no. bandwidth. So I put up a, a just a, 
small web page with an explanation. And then um, now it's uh, been fixed after we got home. So, dear Thank listener, you for your patience we and are understanding. very sorry for the the lack of uh, connectivity, but that's the way it sometimes goes. I guess we'll have to plan a little bit better next time. So, the safari. Well, I think most of this month is well. We do have quite a few interesting topics to talk about, even with RVing. But I think the theme of this uh, podcast is boondocking in Africa. Or camping in Africa. Well, yes, because we stayed in many safari camps. Which were tents with toilets attached. (laughs) Right. So almost all of our trip uh, was composed of these safari camps, which were at the end of a long, dusty, bumpy, bumpy, two-track road. And It was amazing to us that in many of the places that we visited, and we visited the big places in Africa where the animals are located. Ambicelli, Serengeti. Masai Mara. Ngorogoro Crater. Right. Uh, We spent about three weeks doing this, and invariably we would drive down to the end of a long road without any names or anything, and our drivers just kind of knew where to go. And sometimes you weren't even sure you were on a road anymore by the end of it. And there would be this lodge. Now, lodge is not uh, the way you would think of a lodge. It was composed of several buildings that were uh, basically canvas, and then a central facility that housed a restaurant, sometimes in a tent also. And theoretically, the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) In most every place. But when when you go 10 miles down a dirt road, two-track road and you find a lodge, uh, it's pretty amazing that there's anything there at all because they're all running on generator. This was another issue. Uh, uh, This was uh, far less sophisticated than our RV itself. (laughs) So this was true boondocking. But yet in some ways it didn't feel very primitive. No. The facilities were beautiful. Uh, the Nicely located. The food we had was excellent. Um, right. Things were clean, um, beautifully decorated. They were as nice and modern as they could make them. But location is important because you want to be near the animals. And so the, having it at the end of a road means that you're closer to where you want to be to do your game viewing. And that's why we were there. So these tents would have um, canvas walls a fairly hard floor, not a dirt floor, but usually cement or tile. And then they would have kind of a bathroom that often was um, an actual masonry type of facility. More solid than the room where we slept. And most of them had sinks with what running water, which we couldn't drink, but we could use for everything else. There were various levels of this type of facility also. The most primitive one we stayed in um, had no running water at all, although we did have a toilet we could flush, but they warned us it would take seven minutes well, to but it was to just They just had a gravity a feed tank from above. And we had to schedule our showers. And <laughs> it's a little man, unbelievable. A little man would come with um, warm water and fill a bucket outside our tent. And and then he would lift the bucket high above the shower head. 
and we would pull the cord to get wet and, <laughs> and to rinse, would... and he would stand there and wait for you while you were taking a shower, which was kind of disconcerting to me. The to only have, talking shower we ever had. <laughs> some man I don't know while I'm taking a shower, um, but it worked. And they also hauled water for these little basin things that were. But that like was definitely a, a military shower outside of our tent. That was the most primitive, and that was just kind of it was kind of a wet wet bathroom. You just kind of showered in the middle of everything. And as you might imagine from seeing too many movies about Africa, most <laughs> of our beds uh, were covered with mosquito netting, but we really did not have any bugs to contend with at all. Yeah, basically um, I don't think I got dry. any bites. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, could vary with the season. I can only speak to when we were there, but we didn't find it to be buggy at all. So, we landed in Nairobi from Dubai. Dubai being a, a very modern and well-organized city, as more so than almost any city in the United States. We go from that to the third world of Nairobi. And I think the thing that happened to me when we landed in Nairobi and started to take the tours there was is that we were the only white people that we ever saw. If you saw another white person, they were a tourist. And at home, this would be very disconcerting. But... We didn't find it to be disconcerting at all. We stood out so much. I guess that's because we like to try to blend in when we can, when we're tourists, and there was no way to blend in. But no one seemed to care. People were very kind and friendly to us. Either that or they liked our our money, but whatever. Whatever their motivation was, we felt very well treated. We felt very safe at all times. People were friendly and helpful whenever we needed a hand. And uh, we couldn't say enough good things about the Africans that we encountered. And you have to remember that we were uh, off the tour for a few days because we we came early and left late. And so we had an opportunity to just kind of travel around on our own. So Nairobi and Tanzania, uh, Kenya are very good places to visit. And you think about going to these places and they sound so far away and and you think of Africa as being dangerous and with the world situation the way it is, you think of danger. But boy, we did not feel anything like that at all. We felt very safe. And and if you love animals, to see them in their natural habitat without a cage, without a restriction, doing what they want to do when Mm -hmm. they want to do Mm -hmm. it. As you probably could tell from our previous comments, the first third of the trip at least, we went berserk with taking pictures, which tapered down to some degree because it became more and more interesting just to watch the animals and see how they behaved and see how they interacted with each other. It was a fascinating experience. I couldn't recommend it more highly. Right. And and as we said, being in these kind of third world countries, we didn't feel unsafe at all. Um, It was was a really good experience. And we were very well taken care of by the oat company. Mm -hmm. Um, we, We were a group of 12 and which was exactly the right number to fill two vans. The game viewing vehicles held six passengers, and so that was uh, worked out very well. And I'm sure they limited. And some of the camps that we went to could not hold many more than 12. So we were uh, exactly the right number. And you'd hate to go on a bus size thing. And of course, we didn't take any buses on this trip. We took small planes, which is why we had our weight restriction. <laughs> Remember, we were last month, we were so worried about 33 pounds, including your carry-on. And that they had even sent us the duffel bag that we had to, so that we couldn't overpack. Um, but Which everybody brought. 
Yeah, but it turned out that we worried unnecessarily, as we often do. Well, um, the clothing that we took was sufficient. Right. And with some exceptions, I would say the weather was a little warmer than I expected it to be, so I had a right. little too much warm clothing, right. which I didn't use every piece of. But um, in these camps, it was very easy to get laundry done. Laundry meaning that someone would take your clothes this and hand wash them. <laughs> and, and hand dry them. And hang them on a line and then dry them and typically we paid a dollar or two dollars to have a piece of um pants or or shirt laundered so um it was you got tired of wearing the same three outfits all the time but everybody we were with was wearing the same three outfits as well and clothing became unimportant as long as you were comfortable right and we we did take the right stuff and the weather was overall very nice it was in the mid 70s and uh, coolish at night which was perfect we had a few days that were uh, in the upper 80s but it was dry so we uh we managed pretty well which was a bit of a surprise uh the 30 33 pounds actually turned out to be not 33 pounds. It turned out to be one suitcase. That's what they really cared about. Uh, and these little planes, we were on these uh, Cessna Grand Caravans, which were a, quite an amazing plane. It holds 12 passengers, so exactly our number. And uh, they would land in places that... Well, we would have to go scare the zebras off the field before they could land, and we would then uh, the plane would come in and land and take us to our next destination, which was a pretty exciting way to travel, I would say. And you know, you're sitting next to the pilot, and you're uh, you watching know, his every move. And of course, you're really scrunched in there, and there's no room for any uh, any bathroom breaks or anything on that that type of plane. But we were only on them for an hour or so. And it was fun to look down on the places that we had just toured yes. by Jeep and see the same landmarks, which were now familiar to us, and look down on the animals and look down on the Maasai encampments. They tend to live in fenced-in round villages, and you could recognize them very easily from above. And every hour that you flew saved you four to six hours of bad driving on bad rough driving roads, road so rough it was roads. worth doing. As a person who doesn't really like to go on tours all that much... Africa is expensive, and I think being in a group of 12 kind of optimized our spending power. We did see some people in Jeeps like ours where it was just a couple, and when you thought about what we paid for a group of six as opposed to what they paid for two people, you'd have to be pretty wealthy to be able to do that for any length of time without a tour. And I think that uh, the photography was, uh, opportunities were just really fabulous. And I'm not sure they could get much better, uh, even with spending more money. It was interesting that virtually everybody was in the same type of vehicle, regardless of how much you paid. It was just how many people were in the vehicle. Uh, The maximum they had in a vehicle was six, maybe seven, but they had pop-up roofs. So and of course windows that opened, so, and everybody was sitting on a window, so that during the day when we were on game drives, that is driving around looking for game, we would be able to stand up and not have to shoot through the window, and have a much better view because you can stand up and and look through this uh, open hatch. Also, the open uh, roof meant that uh, it was blocking the sun, so that we didn't have to have a sun hats and. And didn't have to worry about suntan and sunburns and all that sort of stuff, which was really nice. Now, the photographic opportunities were really very good. And because they can't go 
uh, cross country means that they have to stay on the roads and everybody has to stay on the roads. So everybody's view of the game is about the same. With that said, we did get very close to game and because the game doesn't care about the roads. <laughs> so uh, you can find the wild animals right next to the vehicles, which was really good. So we both had new cameras. With long telephoto lenses, which we were with one of us had a, one of us had a long telephoto, which we lens. were happy to have, but Maybe. often wasn't all that necessary. So how did your camera work out? Um, it worked out very well. And my, what do you have? So I have the new Sony HX90V, which replaces a very similar camera that I also liked quite well. But what really was the deal breaker for me was this one has a viewfinder, which made all the difference when you're it trying really did? to spot a cougar or a lion or. Or, uh, because many of the animals look a lot like the the environment that they're in. They're meant to be camouflaged, <laughs> so, and they are. So using a long lens with an LCD viewfinder was a problem for a lot of people. But when I compare my camera to yours, where it was weak is in particular when we took pictures of Cape buffaloes, which are all black. They didn't pick up the detail in the animal. It's just kind of this big black blob. Mm -hmm. And when my lens was all the way out at 30... It's 720 um, millimeters. I had a very difficult time to keeping it steady enough. I couldn't use a tripod in that setting, and I don't really like to but use a tripod. But you were able to. One of the good things is you, you couldn't use a tripod, but in many cases you didn't need it because brace you could myself. brace yourself, and they would shut off the engine so that you could brace yourself no. against the vehicle. But even then, yeah, yeah. when my pictures, well, when I was zoomed all the way out. Yeah, it's a 720 millimeter lens. I mean, you know, that's really hard to stabilize under any situation. But other than that, I loved my camera. Your pictures turned out really good. I'm glad I got it. And this was the first time that I posted to my blog using an iPad uh -huh. um, rather than oh, that's my... that's right. We did a big change there. Rather than my laptop, uh, again, because of weight and space considerations. And so I wasn't able to enhance my pictures as much as I like to before I posted them. But even so, a lot of them were blog-worthy, and I could post them pretty easily just through the iPad. IPad. I was pleased how that worked. So if you'd like to look at some of the pictures that uh, Martha took, you can go to our blog, which is at mytripjournal.com slash Wiseman. I think the trip is 38. 38, which has a day-by-day -day itinerary of exactly what we did, including pictures and videos that were mounted on the fly from, from Africa. From bad internet. <laughs> and I also want to mention that Africa is expensive for people like us because people like us demand um, facilities and services that the locals do not. We saw a lot of what they call hotels, which we would never <laughs> consider staying in. Well, yeah. And in the national parks, we were charged a tariff of $50 a day per person, where a local would be paying 5 And, well, that's and you might though. feel that that's unfair, but we can afford $50, and the locals and, and cannot. And it's worth it to find the animals and to keep them safe. And to keep the parks going. Right, exactly. um, we saw there was a lot very, of expense. We saw very endangered animals such as rhinos who had their own rhino protection squad that was following them around trying to keep the poachers away 
from them, and that's expensive. It was for a good cause. And that's the thing that Kenya and Tanzania do, the two countries that we visited. They are very animal conservation friendly, and they keep their parks free of poachers and that sort of thing so that the tourists can can visit and have a good experience. And we certainly did have a good experience. If you're going, my lens was a 400 millimeter equivalent, and that was barely enough. I would say you want at least a 400 millimeter lens. The difference between Martha's camera and mine was the fact that mine has a one inch sensor so that the quality of the original image is substantially better. And I looked at that uh, and I saw that as I looked at Martha's images. Some of them start to pixelate fairly quickly or the image starts to break down because the sensor is not as big. But mine had the electronic viewfinder also, and that to me is another critical factor. Although I have an LCD in the back, I never used it. And we had numerous examples of people who had bought new cameras with long lenses, and they just could not get the pictures that we got. Because they couldn't see what they, they were Because they couldn't see what they were getting. Yeah, exactly. Especially That's in bright very sunshine. difficult, and I can't emphasize that enough if you're looking for a new camera. The new electronic viewfinders are very good, and they are going to appear on more and more cameras because people are dissatisfied with the LCD. So we did see lots of animals, and we got some great close-ups, which was really very interesting. The animals really don't care about the people. And we had a couple of uh, kind of close encounters. Well, one even scared our guide a little bit. <laughs> scared uh, us. We were watching a, a pride of lions, maybe 15, 20 of them. Lions are generally pretty lazy unless they're eating, and so they were just laying around in the shade under the trees, but one of them who was younger took an interest in the 25 jeeps that were gathered around them taking pictures of them and started to stroll around. And at first we thought she was going to lay in the shade of our jeep because it was a hot sunny day and we both were kind of craning our necks out the window looking for her. Well, where did she go when she suddenly jumped on the hood of our Land Rover? And if she had taken one more jump, she would have jumped through that hole between the roof Which and, has no protection. and where we had it open and been sitting in our laps. So Inside the vehicle. Our guide was quite surprised to see her there and had the presence of mind to start the car and put it in reverse and gently give it a little lurch and shake her back off the hood. So nothing happened to her, nothing happened to us, although we did have some fairly significant scratches from her nails on the hood These of the car. These are big animals. So that could have been a bad ending, but ended up being a very. And this animal story. was not the least bit aggressive. Uh, I think it was just, just cat curious, yeah. and it was just kind of looking around. They don't view. I mean, they were not obviously coming after us and in, in, as seen as food or being a predator. They were just just plain curious. Our guide told us that it, that had never happened to him before. That he'd never seen a lion jump on a. Vehicle. vehicle, as she said, it was scary because they we don't we, we didn't carry we didn't see a gun for the whole time or any sort of weapon, except <laughs> except at camp, <laughs> and at our camps because the tents were away from the main uh, main building where we would have dinner or have entertainment. The camp provided guards or escorts to your tent. 
So after you had dinner and you were ready to go back, it would be dark by then, uh, a local person would walk with you carrying either a rifle or a bow and arrow or a machete, which they never used. Well, Um, we suck. I think part of their function was just to help us find our way in the dark, but it reminded you that even though we were in a lodge, that the lodge was in the middle of open land where the animals could be coming, even though we were not exactly in the national parks, we were... very close to them, and the animals go wherever they want to go. And we did see animals many times in our, in our, actually in the, on the grounds of our facility. And one night there was an elephant that came through the, the lodge and uh, broke down some trees and that sort of stuff. So that, that does happen. Once again, it wasn't being anti-human. It was just doing its thing. And when you're sleeping in a tent with canvas size, whatever is going on outside <laughs> is, is very easy to hear. And we were never quite sure whether we were hearing a toad or a cricket or something considerably larger, but we heard a lot of strange noises that we don't normally hear when we go camping. And our tents uh, sometimes had electricity. Uh, we had electricity for lights, which were frequently run off of batteries. The generators in these camps would run for five hours a day or so two hours in the morning and three hours at night so we had this massive battery charging from 5 30 to, to 8 30 uh things shut down in the parks at dark so you are back uh before slightly before dark uh which means you are anxious to get everything charged up for the next day because uh you got to be ready with these uh, batteries and we took along a couple of rechargeable batteries that we used to recharge our systems which was uh proved to be quite helpful but that also means because it's on generator that there was no anything like air conditioning we didn't have any tv didn't have any communication except a little bit of internet once in a while and it was slow but it was the only way we got any information about what was going on in the outside world which is not our style to say the least and that's why i'm calling it african boondocking because this was it felt like boondocking no satellite dish to go up and, and pick up this, the tv and the and the internet from uh, this guy and on our rv we get to run the electricity or the generator anytime we want whereas this was very much controlled we were definitely in the boondocking mode and as we said the one shower was uh, the military shower because it was from a bucket up above (laughs) and the water was only hot at the time that you uh, were appointed to take your shower many of the evenings when we weren't watching tv we were busy sharing photographs with one another and ken brought along the air stash which was a gizmo that allowed us all to do that we would all log on to it as if it was a wi-fi purveyor right and pick out photos that we wanted to um, share with each other and download photos from other people and that was kind of the evening entertainment many, well this turned out times. to be really uh, a great option <laughs> the air stash is actually very small and self-contained battery so it's a storage device a, a wi-fi storage device and a hotspot with battery so that it wasn't connected to the internet, although it can be, but we could have people sharing photos, and the nice thing about it is is that you could share them on your iPhone, your Android, your iPad, your computer. Nobody else brought a computer but me, but uh, there were numerous people who had phones and iPads so that we could share the photos. And my thinking was that 
when everybody splits up at the end, they're all going to have a copy of the of the pictures that we've taken. And everybody takes pictures of you know other people, and you 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 don't you never get to see them again. And on our caravan, we tried to use Dropbox. But due to poor internet and people not understanding how to use Dropbox and blah, 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 blah. That didn't work nearly as well. It didn't work nearly as well as the stash. So this is called the air stash. And (laughs) it was very small. I could easily put it in my pocket. And the way storage works is, is that you buy an SD memory card, which is the standard card that you use in your computer or on your camera, and it then acts as the storage. So there's no moving parts. So the whole thing can be very small and actually doesn't need much battery. So what happens is, is, is that I would turn on the stash... And everybody would log on with their app on their iPad or their phone or whatever they happen to have. And we could then upload and download pictures amongst ourselves, which was a very nice thing to have. And so everybody went home with uh, hundreds of nice pictures, even if they didn't bring a nice camera. People even with uh, with basically pocket cameras, they take good pictures on occasion. You know, they don't get the, the long-distance telephoto shots, but they get pictures of people and, and the locals and things out the window that that I couldn't get or I didn't have. Like, for instance, a picture of me with the lion jumping on the hood. That was taken from another vehicle, which you can take a look at on our webpage this month. So if you are looking for a way to share photos among a group of people, Take a look at the air stash. Now, I should mention that if you have a little bit more power, you might want to take a look at the either the Seagate or the Western Digital version that has an har- a hard drive built in. Uh, I've talked about these before, but I've had very uh, limited use of them. And here, this was used every evening, and uh, people were very excited to have the pictures when they get home. You know, they have the pictures. They don't have to worry about uh, going to some service and, you know, People putting them up, you know, when they put them up, they they were all right there, which is which was very nice. So we're very happy with our cameras, and that was a big transition for me to go from an SLR with a 500 millimeter lens down to this uh, Panasonic digital all-in-one without a interchangeable lens with a 400 millimeter lens. So that was good, though. But uh, I also want to mention that this lens was a 2.8, which was very fast, so that I could get some night shots, which we would have trouble with at other times. Plus, having the one-inch sensor means that it's much more sensitive to light. Well, I've probably talked too much about cameras, huh? More about animals. Well... I don't know that you need to say more about the animals. Okay. You just need to see them. We did see the big five right away. Um, The big five are? The most dangerous animals. The most dangerous animals. And so everybody goes to Africa to see the big five. This was designated by the people who used to hunt them. Right. And so you have the Cape Buffalo, Lion. Leopard. Leopard. Hippo. Hippo. And Rhino. And Rhino. That's the big five, and we were able to see the big five almost every day. And of the big five, the rhinos are very endangered and you don't see many hard of those. to see. Cape buffalo were quite common. And the hippos don't seem like they should be dangerous because they're usually just laying around in the water, but they kill more Africans than any other animal right. because the African people come to the river to gather water, and the hippo is laying there and doesn't like that very well. And and also we talked, we were at one resort where a tourist had been killed by a hippo. <laughs> we kind of just joked about the fact that you're accompanied back to your tent, but this person apparently was not did not take advantage of being accompanied to their tent, was walking back to a couple, was walking back to their tent, and they encountered a 
baby hippo in the path. And the woman, according to the story, decided that she was going to try to pet the baby hippo. Or get a closer get picture. Get a closer picture. And the mother took exception to that, and the hippo has the, the biggest mouth you've Jaw. ever seen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could put the whole half of your body into the mouth of a hippo. I mean, it is incredibly big. And according to the story, the hippo bit the head off. And that was the end of that tourist. Yes. So it, this, it is dangerous, and you should follow the rules. Um, you know, I would like to mention the fact that if you look back in the RV Navigator archives from a few years ago, you know that we visited South Africa on a safari, uh, a very different experience because we were driving an RV. And, of course, there are some nice, interesting RV Navigator podcasts about that. But... South Africa and the Kenya-Tanzania connection are probably the two places that are most popular for doing safaris. Although a lot of the African countries have national parks yeah, but where the, they're trying but, to hang but, on to what they've got. Right, but the, these are the two places where you where you do see uh, most of the safaris going. Uh, maybe Botswana a little bit in there, too, and we certainly had a good time there. Maybe, but what, yeah. was, what would you say the difference is? Well, as you said, because we were doing the trip yeah. in a different way, it felt different in a number of ways. Um, to me, South Africa was more beautiful, yes. um, more Scenically scenic, um, above and beyond the animal viewing. Many of the parks and there better infrastructure. seem to be more specializing in one animal over another, where it seemed like in on this trip, every park we went to had just about every animal you would want to see, maybe with the exception of the rhino. So they were more populous. Is mm-hmm. that a better way to say it? Okay. And in South Africa, when we were not in our RV, there were occasions where we went on game drives where they were allowed to drive cross-country following one night we followed an animal group, that, an, a lion pack that were hunting, and they went wherever they wanted to go to hunt, and we followed them in the land road. Paying no attention to us. Without pay, staying on the road. Um, so that was more fun photographically, maybe, but it makes sense that in Kenya and Tanzania, they don't want you just driving anywhere, because it would wreck the countryside right. if the jeeps went everywhere. <clears throat> well, and, and this uh, driving cross-country was in a private game reserve associated with kruger national park are private game reserves private property that's owned around that now of course the animals don't pay any attention to the to the private game reserve so it's the same animals but in the private game reserves the owners can pretty much run them the way they want to so that you will see more animals closer up more quickly than you would uh, in Tanzania or Kenya. Because, as we said, in Kenya and Tanzania, we had to stay on the roads. They were We were in national parks so that they were uh, they had certain regulations which the drivers adhere to exclusively. Of course, we were not allowed to get out of our vehicle <coughs> except for infrequent potty stops. And every day we would have a picnic lunch because there obviously was nowhere to stop at a restaurant and buy a lunch. And (laughs) one day in particular, I remember they had picked a place out under a favorite tree of theirs because it had some nice shade. And when we drove to that spot, two lions were already there and were laying in the shade and we had to go elsewhere. So um, when we did the RV travel in South Africa, we always felt safe because we had our kitchen and our food with us in our RV and we would stop 
to picnic whenever we felt like it. Where I remember a lot of people at Kruger came in private cars and had right. to drive to those right. little oases here and there where you could be in a compound mm-hmm. and be safe to get out of your car. So it's more feasible for a person to do it uh, less expensively on their own. In South and Africa. Kruger was a much bigger park. It was at least half again as the size of Serengeti, and Serengeti is huge. You have a, a larger opportunity to see animals in different habitats. And that was the advantage of going to different places. We kind of did a circle around Nairobi, going to several different parks. And the animals that you see are pretty much the same in all the parks, but the environment that they're in is very different. Some places have forest, some places have water, and occasionally there will be a specialized animal like lions in the tree uh, so that you can see uh, animals in a specific habitat. But overall, the things we saw were pretty much uh, the same in all the parks. So if you go for just a week, you wouldn't feel too bad about not going to Masai Mara or Serengeti or Amber silly as long as you go to one or one or more of them and something else we kind of tortured ourselves about for both trips is what's the best time of year to go and they don't have winter and spring and fall the way we do but they definitely have wet seasons and dry seasons and the animals have seasons where they are doing different things and i would say that you really can't go wrong Um, we were not there for the rainy season which still sounds kind of bad to me if it's raining all the time but i don't think it's really raining all the time and if you're there during a dry season when there aren't many leaves on the trees, you can see a lot better. Um, Plus the animals are more concentrated because they're right near the water. Wherever the water is. And we saw some vestiges of large groups of animals migrating, which was very exciting, even though we weren't there for the official But we did see the spot where they do cross, where the alligators, the the crocodiles sit too. And it'd be fun to watch animals mating. It'd be fun to watch animals giving birth. Um, It's all good. But as far as the weather was concerned, we were there at the perfect time. We were there at the beginning of the short rainy season. Now, what does short rainy season mean to you? That it's a short season with little rains? No. <laughs> Good guess, but wrong. That's the way it sounds, but actually it's it's a regular rainy season, but it only rains for a couple of hours at a time, and most of the time at night. So one of the things that we did get to see, which was quite exciting, I thought, was the beginning of the rainy season, which meant that we would have downpours, deluge between 7 and 9 at night, or sometimes in the middle of the night. But in the morning, it would be very nice, and it made everything so green. And the animals were like just loving it because the grass was popping out of the ground. They had plenty to eat, and it really made uh, a difference in their behavior. So we were there before that, and then when that happened, and it was uh, actually a very interesting time to go. So November's not not a bad time to go. Um, We asked them when the busy season was, and they said, oh, well, July and August, of course. And why? Well, that's when Europe has vacations. So apparently, other than going during the rainy, rainy season, and the rainy, rainy season is the rain when it rains all day, every day, is uh, the only time you don't want to go. But other than that, uh, it's pretty much different things at different times, but uh, it's all pretty good. So we enjoyed that, that aspect of it, being there at the beginning of the short, rainy season. 
When we traveled in South Africa, I was very impressed by all the different tribes there, and the tour gave us a chance to encounter various tribes and go to cultural presentations and eat their food and watch them dance. And we had similar great experiences on this trip. Yes. The dominant culture in that part of Africa is the Maasai people, who are very tall and slender people, and we know them because they tend to win all the marathons in our country <laughs> the um, because they are such good runners. Many of their Customs are still being carried out to this day, although it felt very strange to visit people who make their livelihood from herding around skinny cows, which they milk and drink the blood of. And that's the sign of wealth, and, how many cows you have. And the Maasai believe that cows were put on earth for them, and this caused them to be very fierce and warlike when they encountered other African tribes, because if those people had cows, they were obviously stolen, and they would have a, a war and take them away. What happened after this is that the tribes who were always defeated by the Maasai uh, took solace and comfort with the various European colonizers who came to Africa and they were more likely to go to school and adopt their religion than the Maasai were because the Maasai had this rich, vibrant, warlike culture. And then when the colonists left, this meant that the Maasai were not very well educated, and today they are at a disadvantage because of that. So at the time that we went, when we saw the Maasai people, I would say they were with one foot in the old way, beginning yes. to ease themselves into the new way. And when we visited a village, it wasn't hard to find people who were letting me um, smear a man mixture of mud and manure on their hut, oh, oh. which they were uh, repairing and climbing on the roof and thatching the mud hut that they lived in. So they, many of them still live in a, into our way of thinking, a very primitive manner. This was exactly right. And you hear, I mean, we've made jokes and sometimes you hear about living in mud huts and, you know, in this day and age and, and people who have absolutely no modern conveniences whatsoever. They have no water, no electricity, n no plumbing, of course, and just, they live in cows. and they live in mud huts and the offspring of the cows live in the hut with them and they build circular compounds with uh, wooden fences around them to keep the wild animals out and they some of them are agriculturally based and they today. farm today. today. But the Maasai, the Maasai is just one of 43 tribes. <laughs> we talk in the United States, we talk about race relations, but in Kenya and Tanzania, they talk about tribal relations. Everybody knows who everybody else's tribe is, and they can tell by either your dialect or your looks or something. I don't know. I can never quite figure this out. But whereas we have uh, problems with race relations, they have problems with tribal relations in the same sort of way that we do, even though everybody is to us. Looks the same. Look, well, I don't seems know, the same. It seems the same, and yeah. their, their blackness is about the same. So uh, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic in terms of what we would understand, but we were just totally on the outside, so it didn't impact us much at all. But these villages that we visited, and we visited several, and you see as you're driving around outside the national parks, you see hundreds of these villages that are in various states of modernization. And even in Nairobi, we saw occasional small herds of cows being driven between the cars on the busy highways. So that's where the modern life and you the old life are, are still kind of in competition. 
competition with each other. And one day we took an even more fascinating tour to a group of uh, natives that the guide called Bushmen. Um, in my yes. mind, they were more like cavemen. I mean, think of your stereotype where somebody wears animal skins and right. shoots with a bow and arrow. Right. Um, <laughs> these feels- people didn't have regular meals because they ate when they killed something. And the women's job was to forage for nuts and berries and And they were nomadic. Talk about a primitive way of life. And the the group that we visited was literally living in a cave. There there was no... No homes at all. No homes at all. Uh, But they have a very rich cultural history because they broke into song for us and we participated in some dancing and things you know the kind of thing that you that you see on the national geographic movies it was unbelievable although all the women had clothes on uh, well skins on i would say yeah that, that um, group had skins yeah but this this group that was uh, basically a hunting group but uh, and, and didn't grow crops per se was uh, really hard to believe it's still uh, something that's in this modern world. Oh, and another thing that I learned there was, you know, you always wonder why some cultures have multiple marriages when uh-huh. one man has many wives. And in Which the Maasai is- culture, that has been very common, and that's because they were always warring with each other, and inevitably some of the men who were in the battles would die, and the women remaining behind needed some to help care for them and their children. And in other cases, they would also capture the women of the tribe members that they had conquered, thus also adding to the inequity between the men and the women in the population. And this is where that tradition came from. It made sense. Uh, I think education is the key to modernizing these tribes, and there seems to be some movement along to have the kids go to school. We visited a school, which was quite an interesting experience. In terms of the schools that we know from the United States, this was not a school, but children were there being educated, and they were excited, they were uh, enthusiastic, and they were excited to see us there too. And one of the things that we were very happy with is is that the organization that we travel with actually donates money to help these people uh, build infrastructure and to improve their schools and to offer education for their kids. And that's something that we actually saw in action. We saw some of that money being spent. And that's the way we're going to modernize these kids is to change the society through education. We visited many villages that, of course, as we've mentioned, have not do not have electricity and these people are living without water, women carrying water on their heads and, and big pails. You had some experience with that. How was it? Well, when we visited the Maasai village, one of the tasks I was given was to carry a two-gallon bucket of water on my head. Luckily, they let me hold it with one hand because there's no way I could have carried it on my head the way they do. And by the end of the experience, I felt like I was two inches shorter than I was when I started because it was very uh, heavy. They're like carrying five-gallon buckets of water on their head and then carrying two five-gallon ones in their hands. But they don't have running water, so this is the way you get you get water. Living in this style is, we just can't imagine people still living like this. But I was surprised that most people had cell phones. They were pretty pervasive. I don't know how they charged them because there was obviously no electricity, but they must have some solar gizmos that, that charged their cell phones. Of course, our cell phones didn't work. And we missed using them. Yes, we would have liked to have used them, but... Verizon does not have service in Tanzania, and that... uh, Not that anybody could afford anyway. But uh, the local people do use it extensively. However, on arrival home, 
we one of our first projects was to upgrade our cell phones. We are at the end of our two-year contract, so we were uh, eligible for new phones. And boy, has there been some changes in the way cell phone service is being offered. Uh, we are very pleased, finally, to compliment Verizon for splitting off the service from the phone rental phone rental for the phone purchase. So now you can buy a phone and buy service independently of the phone. And so we did. And so we did. And our bill went from $170 a month down to $90 a month. And we are buying our phones through Apple. So we went to the Apple store and now she has a brand new Apple 6S. It's a nice phone, but I wish it wasn't so big. And that seems Is it to too be, big? It's too big. The The phone I had was too big. I really liked them when they were small. So you still want to go back to a flip phone, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. The old Apple phone. But the nice thing about this, we don't have to sign a two-year contract. We get Apple Care is included into the, the price. We are paying monthly for the phones. We were going to buy them outright, but the plan that uh, allows you for monthly payments is actually a better deal than paying outright for the phone. So we have a contract with Apple, and we get Apple Care for free, and every year we get a brand new phone. They better not get any bigger. That's all I can say. Well, next year, iPad Mini is going to be... The size of my phone. The size of your phone, and you'll just have one device instead of having two. I'll need bigger pockets. Won't that be exciting? So, dear listener, uh, if you are in the process of looking for new phones, you don't have to sign a two-year contract anymore, and you can get a phone for uh, about the same th- same price. Uh, I think Verizon's price was $27 a month, and you can get a new phone every year. And if you decide to switch, it's our phones are unlocked so that we can switch to another carrier. Anytime. Anytime without any real hassle because we do not have a long-term contract with Verizon. And I should mention that at the end of our two years, uh, Verizon was very happy to continue charging us for the phone that we had already paid for. So they would have continued charging us the $170 a month, which includes the cost of the phone, uh, and forever, I guess. So pay attention to your bill, and when your contract is up and all the various possibilities that are now available to you that didn't used to be the case. So we have an email. There are other things going on in the world besides Africa. We should talk about RVing at least a little bit. Well, we've been talking about boondocking in Africa. What more more RVing could you talk about? But we got an an email that asked what I thought were some very good questions. Okay. Uh, Question one. Would you mind talking about the membership programs you are a part of? My travel trailer purchase came with a membership to Good Sam. I don't know that I'm using it to its fullest potential. I've heard you talk about it and say you love it. Would you go deeper into your reasons? Also, I'm contemplating a AAA membership simply because we're going to Disney this spring, and they offer discount tickets through AAA membership. Is there any reason to have both Good Sam and AAA? Are there other offers out there we need to consider? Uh, don't know. <laughs> we have Good Sam because Good Sam offers... The, their emergency roadside road assistance, which off. is what we've raved about. Yes. They've been is, very good. Yes. Uh, actually, very recently, I think last month we talked about them fixing a tire. Um, because they work on RVs and they have specialty services for RVs, including unlimited towing, AAA doesn't do RVs. 
So if you get AAA, you are being redundant. Now, if AAA offers you extra service that you need, then fine. But triple, uh, but Good Sam offers you car roadside assistance as well as RV roadside assistance, and you definitely need the RV component because there are special considerations. And as we found, uh, when you have a truck such as our motorhome, you need to have specialized service and Good Sam so far has known who to call when we need something fixed, including our tire. You couldn't just have a, a regular tire guy come out and fix that 22-inch tire. Then why are we also members of AAA? Legacy. You used to like the triptychs. No, I don't like the triptychs, but I before we do any journey of any length, I always go to the AAA and okay. get maps uh -huh. and trip books, Okay, even though they are in many ways redundant, as Ken said. But I like having the idea of having a paper map on my lap as we drive, uh -huh. just in case. Even though we have two GPSs, sometimes they crap out, sometimes they disagree with each other, uh -huh. and I like having the backup of the map. And the AAA books, I have found that they are a very objective guide to an area that I'm unfamiliar to. And when they give a diamond rating to um, an attraction, I generally agree with them that it's something worthwhile and worth seeing. Whereas when you read this stuff on the web, sometimes you're not sure what standards the person used who wrote the reviews. We look at those things as well. Uh -huh. So, I'm, And they offer, also offer the bail bond. Bail yeah, bond and they do card. still do triptychs for you if you would want them. Actually, you can do them online. Yeah. You, they have a triptych app now so that you can just And they have towing service for your car, right? For your car, right, right. right. In multiple cars. We also are members of Passport America, which well, I feel service, yeah. slightly dubious about. It's <laughs> quite cheap, so we still have a membership, and we probably take advantage of it enough to pay for the yeah. membership, but not a lot more than that. Oh, and I also should say, Good Sam, I assume you notice, gives you a 10% discount on a, a number of member campgrounds. And, and their campground book is available online, too. Which sometimes kind of feels like a drop in the bucket, but if you camp enough, 10% discounts do yeah. add up. And it's only $35 or something a year, 60 yeah. something. I don't know what it is, but it's not very expensive. Now, when you asked about membership programs, that also made me think about yeah. the memberships. I don't um, want to get into that, though. That most of the people that we know that have those are full-timers. Right. And that's a whole other complicated subject. Those are quite expensive often. A thousand you, you can buy them for various zones of the country or for the whole country. And then he had a question about replacing trash travel trailer batteries. <laughs> He has a 22-inch deep-cycle marine battery on the tongue of his travel trailer, and it's gone bad because he says he's an idiot and doesn't know what he's doing. I know the feeling. We boondock for several nights a year on multiple occasions. I want to purchase the best battery for our situation, but don't want to overpay for power or features that aren't necessary, so I'm going to list my questions. Number one, should I buy the biggest battery I possibly can find? I currently have a 22-inch. Should I move to a 27? when I replace it next spring. What did, what's your answer, oh guru? <laughs> well, you don't buy batteries by the inch. <laughs> uh, I think that's a Class 22 or a Class 27 battery, and that just refers to the casing and the size that it is. And it refers to how many amps that it puts out. I believe that the 22 puts out about 180 amps, and the Class 27 puts out about 205 so the bottom line is is that the bigger the battery, the more amps it holds. The more amps it holds, the more stuff you can do. 
So the best thing to do, if you have the room, is to replace it with two 6-volt batteries, golf cart batteries. I think it's not only economical, but it also makes electronic sense. Because if you have a Class 27 battery and it has about 115 amps uh, available for you to use, sorry, 215 amps, and you buy two 6-volts that have 225 amps each, so those two 6-volters will equal one 12-volt at 225 amps. So you get more amps for about the same amount of money, and you definitely want deep cycle. Deep cycle marine batteries are what you buy. Golf cart batteries are the same, and there are no special batteries made for just RVs because it's the same battery that you'd use in a marine situation, and the marine market is much larger. So... Uh, you would want those deep cycle, and you can buy those at uh, Walmart and Sam's and Costco. Costco. So there's no real special place to buy it. A lot of people buy Trojan, but I don't think there's really that much difference in terms of life. So you want to put the biggest battery you can in your holder. That's the bottom line. And then keep it in good shape. That's one of the problems that you have. Which was his next question. Okay. Battery maintenance. Well, obviously... Keeping it, uh, the liquid, at the appropriate level is always a good idea. But having the right charger is also critical. A lot of inexpensive RVs have a single-stage charger, which means it charges it and then it's supposed to shut off. But if it doesn't shut off at exactly the right moment, it starts to boil away the water. You want a three-stage charger, which most good motorhomes will have and... And certainly you can buy one. But a more economical trailer might not. more economical trailer almost certainly would not. So the converter, inverter that you, that you have will list on it how it charges, and you want a three-stage charger. That will keep your battery in perfect condition. And, of course, you want to leave it fully charged. Even in the winter, it probably won't freeze if it is fully charged. But if you let it get discharged, there's a problem. And I think, Nick, that I sent you a link to a battery disconnect switch. They, Amazon sells a variety of little disconnect switches because the other problem that you'll have when you are just letting it sit is parasitic loads. And that uh, little pilot lights or smoke alarms, uh, mon carbon monoxide alarms, other things that are on but not really using very much power, but over a long period of time of several months, they could easily discharge the battery. So the recommendation is, is that you put a battery disconnect switch on your uh, battery, and then when you're parking it, you just disconnect the switch so that the battery has no load on it whatsoever. Is there any reason to consider a sealed AGM battery as opposed to the standard battery? Well, I'm not a fan of That's AGMs. That's the glass mat that you Yeah, it could about? be. The, the AGMs are two or three times more expensive, and they you don't get that kind of extra service out of them. So I don't think AGMs are really worth it. One of the, the things about AGMs is that they don't outgas, so you can install them anywhere, and you can install them in any position. They can be on the side or upside down or whatever. So that if you have an, a difficult uh, mounting position, so AGM might be appropriate for that. But in terms of the price, it definitely is not worth it because they don't last much longer than a regular battery, and for two or three times the cost, it just doesn't make sense to me. I thought you were the man that had everything, which is why you're so hard to buy Christmas presents for, but you found a new RV gizmo that you knew nothing about that has got you very this, excited. Well, this is unbelievable. I was reading just generally the RV trade, and, and I found this product, which has been around for a long time that I'd never even heard of, and so... Maybe some of our listeners have actually tried this, 
and maybe they can give me a report. But anyway, I ordered one. We often have thought about getting a macerator. And a macerator takes the black tank stuff and grinds it up and puts it through a small hose that you can run for a long distance. A very appealing idea, but macerator pumps are notoriously unreliable and the whole process is expensive and I just haven't seen the need for a macerator. My stinky slinky works pretty good and when we are places you know you just you get used to using it however it is big and hard to store a lot of people have a nice little place in their bumper where they store it but trailer we, people especially. trailer people especially but we don't have any place like that so I have to store it with the freshwater hose but this gizmo no mechanical parts which is very cool. This is a one and a quarter inch hose. This is a macerator system that pulverizes using high powered velocity jet nozzle. Uses shear force to pulverize waste and toilet tissue. So if you have a water supply, you hook this up to your sewer drain and then hook it up to the water supply and it has a jet in there and a small one and a quarter inch hose that comes out that goes into the sewer and it pulverizes it as it comes out just using water pressure. Does that sound cool? So it wouldn't be appropriate when you're boondocking. Well, you can't dump when you're boondocking black tank anyway. Mm -hmm. So if you did not have a water hose that you were hooked up to. I'm still going to keep the sticky stuff. I guess that's my real question. But, well, there are times when you would have to have that. And you'd always want to keep it on hand anyway, just in case the macerator stopped. But this allows you to have a nice small hose that's easy to curl up and doesn't uh, take up much space and, and have a nice system to macerate your poop. And this one goes far also? like the Well, that's what's neat about this, too. It comes with a 25-foot hose, and I bought an, ex an extension, so I get 50 feet. Mm -hmm. And there have been times when we've needed a yeah, fair amount yeah. of uh, distance. Yeah. And I'm a, well, dear listener, if you've tried this, let me know. I would like to hear from your report. I read the reports, and they were pretty positive, so I'm, I'm pretty happy with uh, what I'm reading about this. If you're headed south... You want to be sure to look at the Farmer's Almanac <laughs> weather map on our website. We are going to the far west. To the winter. dry and mild section of the and country. And the very wet and chilly in Texas. So we're going to head out Texas and go to the very mild. But uh, the Farmer's Almanac has its winter outlook for 2016, and we are using it as the Bible. I'm looking at this map, and I'm thinking it doesn't correspond to the El Nino maps that I've been seeing. Well... They don't know anything about El Nino. No, they don't, which makes the whole thing kind of a exercise in futility. Thanksgiving has just happened, and we are near the beginning of the year, so we're going to talk a little bit about 10 things our viewers are thankful for. Number one is a no-brainer, the low gas prices. Oh, isn't that a... The gas price in Illinois, of all places, usually the highest in the country, we saw it today for $1.83. We're happy. I never thought I would... Once again in my lifetime, see gas below two dollars a gallon. Never say never. Never say never. And I, some places are going to go below a dollar. You know that they'll That's be paying you to take the gas. However, diesel is still, still higher. Yeah. yeah. RVers who are lucky enough to go to them are thankful for warm winter climates. Indeed. Oh. That's what we bought in Florida. We already, TGO, thank we already you. have had a significant snowfall here where we live. And if you'd like to try T TGO, let us know. We're still uh, having visitors. But not in the winter. Well, not in the winter, no. Campers are always grateful for quiet neighbors, especially their dogs. Yes, and we like pull-through sites. Another thing we can be thankful for. 
Not always available, but when they are, we like them. Free boondocking on public lands. Which we'll be doing this year in Quartzsite as well as other places. So that'll be fun. And when we go to Lake Havasu, we'll be doing a little bit of free boondocking there. Overnight parking at big box stores. Yep, always nice. When you're traveling along the road, not to have to pay for the night. When you're just staying for a brief time. Easy access to diesel pumps for those of us who use diesel. Well, we're lucky because we have fills on both sides, but a lot of people don't have that either. But it would be nice if they put the... The DDF, DDF on the right, on the right side, place. yeah. Thankful for RV Park Reviews, which we use regularly to choose the campgrounds where yes, we indeed. stay. We love RV Park Reviews, and we post on there. So you'll be reading some of our reviews if you go to the campgrounds we visit. Mobile communications, which are gradually improving. Well, but it has really made the world a lot easier for RVing. Remember, we used to have to write checks, and we had to take traveler's checks, and you had to have enough for the whole trip, and you couldn't and if you get had money. Issues, and, you had to look right. for a payphone. Yeah, and you could never, yeah, pay, and paying bills was just a pain in the neck. Uh, mobile communications has really transformed the way we travel. And we're thankful for the R- IRV2 community. Who made this thankful list. Well, they not only made this thing, but they have, if you're looking for answers to questions about your RV, they have among the best message boards around. So we are thankful for many things, including each other and all of our listeners and the fact that we've been able to do the RV Navigator for almost 10 years. When's our anniversary? Well, actually next month, January. (gasps) I hope we are coherent. Well, we will be talking to you probably on New Year's Eve. Slightly incoherent. When we will be on the road once again, (laughs) headed this time south and west as we head out to our first stop, which will be Carlsbad Caverns, and then on to Las Cruces. So we will be visiting those areas and then headed heading north and other places that we haven't yet decided. We haven't figured it out. So it is possible that you will find us in a campground near you in the not-too-distant future. We look forward to seeing you and your family in a campground near us. And we wish you happy holidays. Yes. And we thank oh, you yes. for listening to us. Yes. Merry Christmas. Yes, I forgot to say that. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And all best wishes. We would love to hear from you at rvnavigator.com. So send us an email and keep us posted as to what you're doing. Happy travels. Stay in touch.